Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Presumably you're on some form of lockdown yourself and actually thinking about normal work might seem a long way away. Big thing for me is managing your snacking. It seems to be the big issue. Just avoiding just having one more bag of microwave popcorn. That seems to be the the critical thing of getting through the day. That's my personal issue. Spending time at home makes you reflect on things that you never really thought that much about before. Why is it that the moment you buy a new mug, you end up treating all the other mugs like losers? I worry about what sort of person I am by the way I ditch the old mugs when a new mug pulls into town. Anyway, to try and sort of alleviate things, last week I put out an episode with Christy Watson. She's a former nurse talking about that profession. And largely, I'll put it out, it's a lovely chat, but it's a tribute to the, the great job they do. This episode, I'm talking with London Business School Professor Dan Cable about what work's going to look like in the future as we contemplate the fallout of coronavirus and home working. Clearly, a lot of firms aren't going to make it through this completely unprecedented situation. And to some extent, maybe these discussions might seem like first world problems. The intention is to help us understand how we we might use this moment to make work better, never waste a good crisis, as we say in the show. But I don't want to make light of, of how difficult it is for a lot of firms right now. Hope you're well. Hope you're staying healthy. If you're interested in learning how to cope with working remotely, I sent a lot of information on the email for this podcast, and you can find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. So let me dive in. So this is a discussion with London Business School professor Dan Cable. He's the author of a couple of books, and we'll talk about those on the show. Here's my discussion with Dan. So here I am with Dan Cable. We're operating a suitable level of social distancing, right? <laughs> I hope so, Bruce. You seem well, though. Yes, thank you. You feel slightly um, naughty Absolutely. to be on the streets right now. And in fact, Get some I, looks. Went I don't for a wanna... walk in the park today and drew some looks. Yeah, I don't want to make light of it. I found myself in Camden yesterday and I went into Camden Food Market, largely because I'm obsessed with eating the falafels that they have in Camden Food Market, which is small pleasures. So it was very much like a social experiment. We're going to go and explore, see if the falafel stall that we go to. Were you to, wearing a mask? I wasn't wearing a mask. And so I took a couple of photographs. But it would have been entirely appropriate for someone to say to me, uh, what the hell do you think you're doing? Why are you not taking this seriously? And I and I decided the am taking it seriously. It's um, strange times, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm wondering about the same Um, What I've tried to do when I come in here to my office is not run into people. 
Okay. And it seems like for the most part that's worked. Okay. But, what? So, so just try and avoid... Well, the good news is everybody else is gone, aren't they? So it isn't very hard. <laughs> but it feels not more interactive than being at home with my two children that have been going to school. So... And what does the what has the school done? What has London think, Business School done? Oh, London so, Business so, School has canceled all classes, and students are not allowed on campus at this okay. point. Two students were confirmed cases. Okay, and so that pretty much shut down the school. It's really been tricky. I think, like many businesses, we don't have revenues anymore from right. a executive education perspective. Okay. Everything's gone. Right, all the temporary classes, all the one-week classes. That's right. So that's really been something, both from a uh, Dan Cable teaching perspective, because that's much of my teaching, but also from a revenue perspective for the school. You know, that's probably 45% of our revenue. Yeah. And for the people who are the students, the average students, have you gone to distance learning for them? For sure. Right. All of the classes are now um, done in the studio or in the classroom and just recorded. It is very hard to teach to an empty classroom. Right. Yeah. It's... And, and tell me this, there must be some difference. Is there some difference in doing it live versus, because, you know, you're a hop and a skip. Once a teacher is doing a class to an empty classroom, you could very easily say, we're just going to put this on YouTube. That's and it. actually, and your fees for coming to this score are just links to 20 YouTube clips, you Isn't know? Interesting. Absolutely. And if it works that well, then we'll learn something right. there, won't we? So tell me this, what do you specialize in here at London? Business it's called School? organizational behavior. That's right. my group. But what I specifically do is try to make work feel like something that is part of real life to people and not like a nasty commute to the weekend. Right. So it's this idea of, it, you know, like uh, that overused word engagement. Yeah. It's that, but for real, meaning right. you engage your body, you show up but you're engaging your brain. So like the notion of creativity to solve problems that help the organization. And then the idea of like feeling it, you're there emotionally so that you, you feel that it matters. You, you, it, it seems to you that the work is important. Because those themes are more important than ever. Anyone who probably who's listening to this largely uh, has some contact with office work and clerical work. And so consequently, probably three quarters of the people listening to this are working from home or working remotely yeah. in some capacity. And the challenge that all of us have got is we've gone through three weeks of this working out how it's going to work. You know, maybe we've adapted to the new meeting structures, the, the, mm. the new cycles that we've got, but we haven't gone into the, the long-term norms of working out how do I motivate people Absolutely. when I don't see them face-to-face? Because -face? I think most of us have had the experience of that, you know, we've done a couple of days remote or we've worked from home briefly remotely, but not... Our job now is to, in probably one of the most catastrophic economic climates that any of us have ever encountered, our job is to motivate the team to achieve better results than they would have done otherwise. And I just wonder, you know, from your expertise, what are the tools that people could start to reach for? What could, what could they try and do to bring that, that motivation to yeah. remote workers? Yeah, there's a bunch of different issues. Once upon a time, I did a study with another professor named Kim Elsbach, where we looked at what happens for people that can't reveal the appropriate amount of FaceTime, meaning they can't make the late meetings or they can't be there super early through whatever reason. It might be the job itself or it might be because of family issues. And what happens is we found that leaders denigrate them. 
That even though they know they're supposed to say results only work environment and they know they're supposed to say as long as the work's getting done, I don't mind. When we interviewed them, in fact, they said things like, if I can't see them in their chair, I just don't really trust they're doing the work. And that was a really interesting and important study for us. And so that was published in Human Relations. And it kind of made a little bit of a splash. What it shows is that even though we know we're supposed to go results only, what a lot of leaders fear fear and feel is I've lost control. Because the tragedy of that is that that's the experience of workers, that stress levels of workers are higher yeah. than than those who yes. work in the office. Yes. So tell me this then. Do, do you think long term this is a experiment that's destined to fail? No. I love this experiment. You mean the one we're in right now, right? Right, yeah. I love it because it's forcing a couple of things to happen that have been off in the, the novelty shop area of leaders' toolkits. For instance, remote work and working from home is something a few companies have tried a little bit. Now we're into the deep end. We're going to do it. We're going to see how that works. The opportunity to experiment with that and see what works, what doesn't work, and how to make it work. But what I worry about is that, you know, if every business experimenting with it is going to be looking at down 40% year on year, not even down 100% year on year. And so... it's going to be very hard to differentiate between so um, who's doing it well. It's hard to benchmark yourself. And that's why I think this is so fascinating for, for good leaders, because it's very easy for any of us to get into the zone now where we, we do exactly what you say there. You know, it's human nature. We start thinking that no one's working as hard as they could be. However, there will be breakout performances here. There will be leaders who think, okay, I need to completely change how I'm working. So, you know, it might be a far more kinetic style of of engaging with people. I've got to be more animated than ever before. I have to phone people on maybe, you know, I have to take 20 minutes a day to just connect with each member of my team individually Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe I wouldn't have done if I was in the office with them. I would have just swung by their desk and said hello for 30 seconds. For me, it's really interesting because I think we're going to go into an experiment here. We're in the middle of this experiment here, which maybe 16 weeks of experiment, where some people are going to say resolutely, I tried that other world and it wasn't as good. And there will be some people who say, I tried that other world. I had to reinvent myself. I had to challenge all of the instincts I had, but here's how I made that one work. It's great. They say the sort of clock is ticking on whether or not these will work. And Mm. I really hear what you're saying about uh, we won't be able to judge it very fairly. Yeah, that's what I worry about. Yeah. So let's just talk about three ideas I have. I mean, I don't know if um, any one of these has been tested in these environments, but all of these have been tested a little bit. And so um, the first one you've already touched on, which is this idea about personalizing the relationship. I think there's something inherently valuable about a leader Maybe it's a phone call, uh, you know, maybe it's a Zoom meeting, I'm not sure, but calling and just checking in and talking with people about how the work is going Hmm. and how they can help. I I think just asking questions like, talk to me about how your work seems to you now and what problems can I help you solve? This goes right in the space of humble leadership, of starting with the assumption that your job as a leader is to help people do their work. I think that's so different from how lots of leaders view their role. I, I honestly, I think a lot of leaders think that the employees are there to serve them. Mm. And then what this is doing is it's really highlighting the idea that leaders don't really do much. I wonder, I wonder if there's something, just to, to unpack what you said there, I wonder if there's something really that will be 
directionally uh, show us who's doing this well and who isn't it doing it well? Because you use the phrase the work there. I mean, look, you, you, the simple noun. But I think more than ever before, when you're working remotely, you have to break out of the habits of work is, we start with a nine o'clock meeting, then we go to the 11 o'clock That's such an group important meeting, point, Bruce. And then we go, and, and work is sort of your calendar. Right. That's so interesting. And the combination of these legacy meetings that have sprung up and the emails we've got. And for the first time, we're, we're uh, unveiling a new version of the I love iPhone. It, Bruce. Where we're sort of saying, work is actually, right, it's not those meetings because we can't do them now. So work is specifically, you are responsible for this. And I just wonder if actually the people who prevail here will be the people who say, we reappraised what the work was. I love that. And we changed what we did. That's deeply exciting. Mm. Uh, it's almost like this is an opportunity to have like bullshit job detection mm. where we each are able to take a look at the the normal routines, the practices that we got in these rituals of performing. And then when we're away from them, we kind of realize, oh, we don't need those. Yeah. The, those are time fillers that don't really get anything done. And I, wow, how refreshing that is right off the bat. How many of us are experiencing that right now? I think there's an interesting thing there that if you've got, you know, like when you look at sort of coaching loops and, and if you've got a rapid feedback loop here to say, okay, at the end of every week, we're going to take 15 minutes to appraise what's working and what isn't working. And we're candid about that because I think there's a real danger otherwise that, you know, you're going to have a twin track where some companies try and persist with the things that they used to do. And they probably find them and frustrating. And, you know, one of the challenges we're going to have now of this home isolation is that some households are going to have kids in them and the Wi-Fi is not going to be strong enough for video connections. So like that thing that you might say, our best practices, everyone has their Zoom camera on and everyone's looking fully attentive. And immediately all of those things are compromised. So we can't be on 16 hours a week of meetings because there's just not the broadband connection in there. And I just wonder if the best companies are going to be the ones who say we're into this rapid evolution where each week we're going to jettison what's not working we're going to be honest about re-evaluating wow. it we close the week and we get wow. better and so almost you're going into um you're going into a new product development of you're doing this 16 week sprint of npd of inventing the new way you work that for me is interesting absolutely and the idea that it's forced is so exciting and so valuable it's almost like it created a sandbox for all of us mm. where we're not judging it like it's a study it's not a pilot where we're saying is this good enough it's, this is the new way of working, period. How will we respond? How will mm. we cope? That's, that is a unique and exciting position to be in. As, as, as you were just talking there, a thought jumped into my head about how the culture, meaning the norms and expectations that we get used to, start to make work feel like process. And what's happened is we've flipped that back on itself now that work isn't just process, it's getting value created for somebody that we want to serve, okay? When you flip it like that, you have to ask all kinds of new questions. Like in our world right now, you ask a little bit about um, what's happening at London Business School. And as soon as we're not allowed to have the students here, it makes us really reinvent what we mean by teaching. Mm. And all of a sudden, teaching over Zoom, which is something the vast majority of us wouldn't have considered, it becomes one of the only solutions in town. So quickly, we're sharing notes late into the night about what's working best. Right. And I find that to be so healthy somehow that we're, we're working like a real team. 
instead of all in our zones, in our lanes, not interfering with each other, but we're sort of throwing good ideas. Here's what worked for me. Breakouts are really bad. You can't expect that everybody has equal broadband. All of that is so fresh and raw. Mm -hmm. And I only wonder what will happen if the lights come back on and we all come back to work, will some of that new enculturation stick? Mm. Will some of our actual new processes around who are we serving and what's the best way to serve them, if that question doesn't stay a little bit polished and bright? Yeah, that's it. It's really interesting because there's, there's an old Churchill quote, I was just looking there, and it's like, um, never waste a good crisis. Never waste the opportunity presented by a good crisis, something like that. Um, but there's an interesting thing. This is forcing us to do these experiments. And exactly like you say, unless you were careful, we could trot back into the old way of doing things. Yes. Who is it that said that a bullshit job is a job where even the job holder thinks it's bullshit? Right. Who is that? Do you know who? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Somebody wrote a whole book on this. Yeah. But I just love the idea. David that... Graeber, I think, wrote the bullshit job okay. book. Yeah. I just find it so compelling that we are all thrown into a setting where we almost are forced to hyper-analyze and critically evaluate, what is it I do? How do I add value? Who do I serve? Those questions are just the real work as opposed to, as you said, empty processes and um, sort of archival step. Do you see from the past companies that have done remote well? Yes. Or, or are there any things that characterize their behaviors? What what makes, you said taking time for personal relationships was one of them. What else? Oh, what do the leaders do around yeah. that? That's an interesting. Let me give you two more. Um, but in the studies, to be honest, this wasn't really part of the remote work question. But there's two things that I think are really validated and can work here. And then we can open that up a little bit more. You know what I mean? Remote work, it's just still something most companies aren't really messing with in a scientific way. They're sort of doing it sometimes in some parts of the organization, but it's not like a blanket where they're really allowing people. Where they've done it, um, I'm thinking about one study done by one of my colleagues here, Elliot Sherman. Um, they looked at a company a mid-sized company um, that week on and week off toggled between who got to do remote work and who didn't. And at the end of that, I believe it was an eight-week experiment. Customers were as happy, productivity was as high. Many of the employees were happier and had better work-life balance, and in particular, working moms. Right. It benefited them the best. We might be able to talk a little bit more about that, but the two other ideas, so the first one is the one that you brought up, which is this idea about the leader developing a more personal rapport and being a question, a curious question asker about how's it going and how can I help you do your work better? I think there's actually a lot of mileage right there in terms of opening up the conversation. Um, second two um, that I wanted to talk about at some point. Do you ever hear about this job crafting or work crafting? Go on. So, yeah. so I've chatted to someone on this um, because he was chatting to me about his book and he said that he was looking into the themes of this. So job crafting is what? It's essentially proactively an individual employee thinks about their work itself. Like what are the tasks? The people, who do I interact with? And then the purpose, why do I do my work? And then tries to craft them around their own strengths. Right. Now, it, on the one hand, fights against scientific management because that's all about standardization. Everybody does it the same way. We pre-built the process, do it this way. We'll count to see with KPIs whether you did it the way we said. 
This new approach is kind of subversive to that because it says, if you have five people with the same job, they might do it five different ways. And the way you evaluate them might be a little different because that one cares more about the individual relationship. This one cares more about a big speech, for example. And so it's just, it kind of throws a wrench in a lot of what I'll call scientific management around setting KPIs in advance, knowing in advance that everybody has to hit that same thing in the same way, and then who gets the promotion and who gets the bonus. It becomes a bit crazy when you start personalizing work. Okay. Do you see so what I mean? I do. So it seems to me like if that was going to work, you wouldn't be, it wouldn't be having the objective of standardization where effectively everyone's doing the same job, but more saying I'm hiring a hundred individuals and my objective is to get a, a, a series of complex tasks done and I'm going to give people as much autonomy, as much agency in getting it done in the right way for them. That's right, Bruce. And so it's almost, even in a big company, it's trying to get the benefit of specialization rather than rather than sort of big commoditization. Yeah, that's really interesting. And one of the outcomes seems to be that teamwork often improves because you get people doing the bit of work that they really shine and flourish and thrive. And do companies buy into it or is it, is it individual managers? Okay. Uh, I would say companies are warming to it except when it gets in the way of their traditional pay systems, yeah. their per traditional performance management systems. They're, they almost have to look the other way because how I evaluate you might break what you're doing. If it's all standardized and all of a sudden you're not doing X and X is part of my performance evaluation, I almost have to look the other way and allow you to do it, right. just kind of fudge our system. So it's a little, like I'm saying, it's a little disruptive with our yeah, existing system. I, I saw in the sort of the central principles of Netflix, they said one of the challenges of big companies, there's, there's broadly a linear relationship between how big a company gets and the amount of red tape, amount of bureaucracy that exists. And and what you seem to be describing is almost the, the level of autonomy agency that you might have if you're either a, a sole trader or a small company, that you could define your job in a way that really piques your interest, yeah. draws on your energy. But the challenge, of course, is that if you are in that linear relationship where red tape goes up, if you're in a company of 100,000 people, that might seem like an annoyance to that's that it. organization. That's it. Especially if they are keen to do things the way they've always done them. Mm. The really exciting thing about job crafting is it opens up this agility box a little bit because what it allows people to do is think on my own terms, what's the problem I'm trying to solve for the organization? And what's the best way that I can use my strengths, my interests, my background to solve that problem? You get 100 people doing that and the firm gets to learn. The firm gets natural variance and then they get to share best ideas. Now, in the short run, that might seem a little inefficient. But in the two-year, the four-year run, it leads to a learning organization. And that's the hope in some ways. Yeah, it strikes me. I was chatting to um, a guy who works at Microsoft, and he, he told me that, you know, the one thing they've tried to do under Satya Nadella is, is become more entrepreneurial, more, and you can almost see that that might be consistent with that. A big company tries to be more entrepreneurial. So what they invest is they invest in their middle leaders, their leaders be, becoming these more free-minded coaches, these more sort of liberating facilitators rather than controlling administrators. Really. And then now we're back to the alignment with the first point. If we talk about that as humble leadership, we're back to um, a leader's job as being to help set a direction that people buy into, help understand the customer and 
you know, how it looks when we serve them well, but then taking your hands off, we know the best way to do that. Taking your hands off, we know what KPIs you'll have to hit so that we know you've done the right behavior. So it's sort of like loosening up on the how mm. and trying to be more of a support as employees experiment and learn rather than draconian, uh, which is we know best. We've already told you how to do it. And now the question is, can we judge using KPIs which one of you's done it best? Okay. Have you seen companies that have done this well? Companies that have done this well. There's a lot of talk about it, isn't there, right now? There's yes. a lot of yes. academic papers studying it. Self-managed team companies, I think, have done this really well. It's funny you bring up Microsoft. I don't know quite enough people that work there, but let me just tell you one story that I do know about. Um, Dorothy Ree, who works up at Vienna, she's the country manager. She does a thing when they're trying to help. Well, they, I do know that they now are in the business of customizing solutions for companies rather than like software in a box. Yeah, right? I came course. to chat to Herminia here, and yeah, she said that yeah. when you're in cloud and and solutions actually you just it's not a package good you need to adapt it to specific customer needs that's it and so one of the things they're doing for example is taking a hospital paperless in vienna they're doing a thing where they're helping police use digital more effectively so anyway one of the things that she tries to do is get big hunks of the team to go on site, like to go to the hospital. So you have like programmers who are making their 90, 100 grand a year. They'll go on site for a day and they'll talk to like a nurse about what are your concerns about paperless? They'll talk to an admin person, like how will paperless disrupt your work? What are you worried about? They'll talk to doctors. But the point is, ordinarily, the programmer wouldn't be in that meeting because they're just programmers. They're supposed mm. to just do the programming. It feels inefficient if you put on the lens of industrial management. Mm. If you put on this new lens of job crafting, of bringing your best to the work, of trying to feel that the work has meaning and purpose for you personally, it's genius. So what I love about this is some of these, let's call them leadership strategies, they look really different depending on what glasses you put on. Yeah. The really interesting thing about this for me is that when it's done purely, it sounds wonderful. But the danger of all of these things is that they get reduced down to a book that's sold in WH Smiths and they become really simplified. And, you know, I'll give you the, the perfect example. The perfect example for me is purpose. You've mentioned purpose three or four times there. And, you know, I've attended enough events and conferences in the last two or three years where quite often someone who's trying to pass themselves off as a culture expert will say um, it's all about purpose. And, you know, and then the next thing they'll do is they'll have, and we communicated our purpose to the team with this video and they play a four minute video and you know exactly the sort, beautifully ethnically balanced pumping chart music <laughs> and uh, you know exactly the sort. <laughs> a lot I can of, see it now. There's a lot of stock images of people smiling from a time... Deeply when, diverse groups. Yeah, absolutely, from a time when social contact was perfectly uh, acceptable. But um, we, uh, but you see all those things and they say, and we, and we brought the purpose to bear and then they start doing the sort of the number wang of like blah, 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 22, 42, 62%. And, um, and I'm just not convinced that that purpose even remotely bears any 
similarity to the bit that I've seen purpose described in the academic work. So, so unequivocally, you know, we were talking before about the Adam Grant work about purpose, the the study for, for listeners benefit. He got some people who were raising money for scholarship students and they were very familiar with having the manager describe to them the beneficiaries of these scholarships. But what they did is they actually brought a scholarship student in to half of the classes to actually talk to them directly. And the amount of money that the scholarship student meeting them directly was three times higher than the manager describing it. And this is what he says is the difference between purpose and and something that's just communicated by your manager. But if we go back to my conference where there's someone standing up and they're showing that video, well, that scenario, A, in, in that story, that's the manager describing a situation. That is not what Adam Grant says, which is all about purpose, which is something individualistic. It's something that visceral, yeah. it, it, it sits it's inside emotional. you personally. Yeah, almost like purpose is something you feel, not a message you hear. Mm. And I think that is something that is hard for a lot of leaders to get their head around. To say it in kind of like... um Almost like a philosophical way. Purpose is something that can be found, but cannot be given. It's not something you sort of like hand out like playing cards. But um, unfortunately, it seems more efficient to leaders to go off and have the offsite a day. And then we all figure out the purpose and then we come back and we give it to the employees. And there's someone who's great with words and they conjure a really snappy expression of it. But it, it really triggered it for me when I, you, I heard you talking about the Microsoft team in Vienna, because almost you can't shortcut this. That programmer sitting with a hospital worker, seeing the the frustration, but the the desire to do a good job in that hospital worker's eyes, nothing is going to be a substitute for that. No matter how much you try and reduce it to four or five PowerPoint slides. You've really sharpened it. This is, I call it personalizing purpose. And that's something leaders can do. What leaders can't do is give the purpose because as an emotion, I think anyway, humans are built evolutionarily to make sure we're not being tricked. And I feel like when somebody is trying to ram an emotion down our mouth, there's a sense in which I'm worried about being tricked. I'm worried about you deceiving me about the purpose. I'm worried about you trying to exploit me. And the emotion that seems to stem from that is disgust. You want away from that person that's trying, almost like if it was a pile of rotten meat, and you walk up and sniff it, your body's going to protect you, and it's going to kind of shut you down from that. And I actually think that that's, we are like bullshit detection machines when it comes to being tricked. And evolutionarily, you could see why. I mean, this is like an arms race of deceit detection. And so I I actually think that some of this is deeply evolutionary where we don't want our emotions to be tricked and we don't want to be exploited by people with stories. Fascinating. I've just been studying. Do you know this course by Dr. Laurie Santos, which is the highest rated course at Yale ever? I have heard about this. Right, they the introduced happiness. a course. And I've been doing her course. She posted it all online. And one of the things she talks about there is that um, we, it's, I think it comes from a book by Dan Gilbert called Stumbling Into Happiness. That it's a strange thing that when, if we tell ourselves, if we do this, we'll be happy. And that might be a material possession or it might be a holiday that we're planning to go on. But we seem to be significantly less happy when we achieve that than we anticipated. However, if we find ourselves 
just accidentally going into a restaurant and it seems fantastically fun. We seem to be able to score higher degrees of happiness from those things. And so his conclusion from that was that human beings, we, we sometimes, you know, do need to achieve happiness obliquely. We, we can't be just simply sold something off the menu and that's precisely what we do. And so back to the Microsoft point, it seems like, and to, to your thing there, it seems like if you, if you decide that... If a company says we want to facilitate you achieving a degree of understanding of purpose or connection with this job, um, however, we're going to set time aside for you to reach your conclusion on that, then I, th- I wonder if the outcome then is, is more stumbling into that purpose rather than specifically, here is your purpose, go and meet Dave, Dave is going to tell you why this is important to him. It's almost wow. it, that, the degree of curiosity and self-discovery is actually probably wow. one that, look, this is your speciality, but that, that seems to be one of the ways that anchors it more. I think that is so deeply, profoundly true. I think that I'm not a neuroscientist. I, I don't even play one on TV, you know what I mean? But I read a lot of that stuff and it appears for real that there's a part of our brain that is hungry to look for our own cause and effect. And it's why we do like to experiment. We like to push on X to see if Y moves. And it appears to some people, this part of the brain is called the seeking system. It appears to some of these neuroscientists that for a human, that notion of looking for cause and effect is something that our brain values. And you could even say that that's like the purpose. That the purpose isn't like to solve world hunger. The purpose is that I have an impact on what other people feel. Mm. And emotionally, we need to see that firsthand. Emotions are so different from cognitions. I think that a lot of leaders are trained quite logically and rationally. So they use words and figures and numbers and text and they have offsites. But those things don't make the employee firsthand feel an emotion by looking in a nurse's eye or a doctor's eye or an admin's eye and saying, I'm really worried about this part of it. Tell me this, why is it then? I mean, look, number one, you're a, you're a business school professor. And so the idea, I bet you there's some, whether they are your contemporaries now or your, your peers from the past, but the idea that we would be in a room now talking about emotion and business, that they would be... They would be disgusting. It's they, so, so, right. so true. And yet, any time we either recollect a team we loved working in or we recollect a job where we really felt driven by it, there's an emotional, a significant emotional component Absolutely. to that, isn't there? It's like, you know, it's almost like we're trying to pretend that this is algebra, but in fact, there is something far more human in, That's so, in our engagement with our job. Have you ever heard about um, Chip Heath's book, yeah. Switch? Yeah. He talks about the rider and the elephant, mm. and Jonathan Haidt talks about mm. this as well. And his is called The Happiness Hypothesis. Both of these great thinkers have this idea of the rider, which is our sort of cognitive, rational, prefrontal cortex part of our brain, sitting on this big emotional elephant in the big limbic system. It's three quarters of our brain. It's much older, much faster, and so on. And a lot of times, rationally, the rider thinks he's in control because he has the reins. But if that elephant gets spooked and emotionally it wants to bolt, guess who's going to win? And I think that what we're talking about now sits right on this area where so many business leaders like they wish it were as controlled as algebra and they wish it was as linear as I say and therefore you do. And that maybe used to work when business changed really slow. And you could sort out the right answers and then teach everybody and then have them do that same way for a decade. And I think what's so exciting about today is 
we're in a situation where things are moving faster than that solution can bear. This is why I think so many leaders today want employees to act like entrepreneurs and to be proactive and to think about solutions without waiting to be told. But a lot of times we're still using HR principles that like right out of the mm. 1950s. And by the way, we're part of that problem as business schools. You know, we, we have facilitated some of that type of thinking to act more like scientists. But as the science of emotions and the science and neuroscience of emotions becomes more understood, we're starting to understand concepts like emotional contagion. We're starting to understand the effect of modeling and sort of mimicry. And a lot of these um, phenomena seem to really engage people in a way that linear and rational would not help us understand. Mm. Yeah, because emotional, emotional contagion, again, you know, Seagal Barside does, does a lot of that at Wharton. And these are things that, you know, 20 years ago, I'm certain, emotional contagion. We didn't believe in it. No, it, like, there's no way that business school people would be looking at it. When I first started, and this is 95, I was teaching at Georgia Tech, and I was talking with the students about the idea that it's about more than profits, that... A comment that I used to make and still like to make is, in life, if you get a load of money, it doesn't mean you're done. It doesn't mean you won. Like, now the question is, what am I going to do with it? Mm. And it's the same in business. Back then, though, I got sniggers. I got people uh, almost laughing at me. And it's just how far we've come. Because now, this is what executives are hungry for. This is the issue that they seem to want to talk the most about. Whether or not they think it's going to work is, how am I supposed to talk about purpose? I know all these people want it. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> so I feel that, um, back to the coronavirus and so on, I feel there's an opportunity here to be a little bit less pat and slick and macro about purpose and more personalized and individualized where the leader is talking with a person one-on-one -on -one about who do we serve when you do your job? Mm. Who gets affected when you do your job well? How would you act in ways to make the customer happier with what you're doing? By the way, the customer might be internal, like who reads the spreadsheet you put together, or external, who watches the video that we now have to create? I just think that there's an opportunity to hit the refresh button on yeah. purpose. I love uh, it. I love it. And all of it. I mean, it strikes me that if, if everyone's on this 16 weeks, you know, it's like an end of term. It's like a, a changing of the academic year, isn't it? It's sort of where most of us have only have ever had a situation where we stumble into the Christmas break, exhausted, ready for the year to start. And these are so, so many family ob obligations. So we're in this weird reset. And it strikes me that the, the people who are going to do well out of this, the people who aren't going to waste a good crisis, are the ones who say, right, we, we looked at all the Lego bricks that made our job and we decided that only these ones were doing anything worthwhile. And what we're going to do is we're going to try and use the opportunity presented by this reset to say, how can we make people feel like their job specifically has got less of this flabby waste to it? That's wonderful. It's actually, and it's, it's more precisely geared to what they're trying to do and try and bring some of this uh, this energy back to, to people's jobs and their, their, con their connection with their jobs. We just got off the phone right now with Upfield, which is a company that's going to let us, I think, play with a concept called ProTime to solve some of the problems you're asking me about right now, like What's what ProTime do. So ProTime is the idea that you give people two hours a day for deep work. And they okay. literally put it in their calendar. They block it off. The door is shut during that time. And they 
you could say play, but they play in such a way that they're solving the bigger problems of the organization. It's four days a week. Um, and then the fifth day you're planning for the next week. And in the context of the coronavirus and what leaders can do now, we're actually going to allow, it looks like, um, each employee to pick one other employee that they team up and do pro time with, which we hope will solve this problem of alienation and isolation, which I think a lot of people aren't used to working mm. alone for day in and day out. And the idea of being able to, A, do deep work so that there's a structure that I have at home. You know, I'm going to dive in deep and use my unique skills and my interest to solve a specific organizational problem. But B, I'm going to do that with somebody else where we have a united interest and it mm. kind of allows us to keep a sense of teamwork and camaraderie. I, I just have a great feeling about mm. this study. I also feel from an organization's lens, it's a way to kind of protect the bottom end and make sure you're still getting a lot of the best out of people, even though you can't see them and they're all working remotely. You have this sense that each one of them is plying their unique strengths toward the organization's needs, solving unique problems without me telling them to do it. I don't know if you know, I'm sure you know a lot about the sort of, um, I don't know, like, Companies that allow people for 25 hours to kind of go and play, you know, like hackathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All about yeah. This. It would be like that, but it would be daily. It would be an eight-week project, and it would be with somebody else that you chose. Right. All of these things seem to be um, brilliantly adapted to leaders and managers with a degree of maturity, self-assurance. Yeah, too. that's right. There's a lot. It takes so much self-confidence. It, it seems to me like what you're doing is you're- Back to your paper that you wrote that you said managers, unfortunately, find themselves thinking, my team aren't working that hard. I and don't trust them. Yeah. And it's, so how would you coach someone who maybe finds themselves experiencing what you found was common. Wow. But knowing that if they can just escape that sense of distrust, yeah. they can liberate all of this extra connection. Energy. Yeah. It's energy, it's productivity. Um, I'm going to say it a little stronger than I believe. It's their own relevance. Meaning? If a leader wants to be relevant over the next five years, if they want to be allowed to serve as a leader. They're going to need to practice these, what I call the, the triggers of the seeking system. And number one, that's the first one is allowing people to self-express unique ideas and find their own ways, personalize the work. Number two is experiment and explore, find ways to serve the customer without waiting to be told, small sprints where you try out new things. And then the third one is this personalizing purpose helping people get in touch emotionally with purpose rather than trying to like jam it down their throats. These three triggers, I believe, are the tools that future leaders will need if they want employees to be agile, if they want them to be learning mindset, if they want them to be helping the organization solve problems. I think that a leader that stays close to this and tries to continue to be draconian, you know, top-down, hierarchical. I'm in charge because I say I'm in charge. They're going to find themselves like Kodak. That they'll, they'll find themselves out of work because they won't be able to fit into the fast-moving work environment of quick change. Yeah. That, that's, it's almost like self-preservation, Bruce. 
So there's an interesting thing there because I guess a lot of people might reach for the supervisory style of management because it's a way for them to check that someone has done a certain amount of work. And what you're saying is, yeah, it's a lot more sophisticated. It's probably a lot more demanding on the leader, but finding a way to to enable people to be self-motivated and to be motivated by the part to find the parts of the job that they buzz off. And maybe there'll be different parts for different people. That's what a, a higher level of leader will try and do. I think that that's right. And this mostly can fit under the broad category of the humble leader that starts with the assumption that my job, when I earn my money, is to help the people that actually do the work do it more effectively. And I think that that frame is a way of retooling for a lot of leaders. And again, I'm going to say this, I think it's very threatening to a lot of leaders to acknowledge that, to accept that, but it is very likely the way forward. I don't think that things are going to start moving slower anytime soon. Mm. I, I heard this quote that even made my blood boil a little bit. Somebody said to me two weeks ago, well, the good news about today is this is as slow as it will ever go. And it really was like, oh, <laughs> I feel like we're moving really fast right now. Uh, and was that specifically to the Corona? Oh, no, oh, no. no, that it was, was just, like the modern day was, of work. It was just a sort of a very, I think, sophisticated leader. As we were looking back and talking about what the last five years have brought in terms of like, you know, printables and thinking about self-driving cars and thinking about machine learning and thinking of all of these different uh, concepts that we didn't even know of, you know, blockchain. We didn't know what that was five years ago. And then he made the comment, well, the interesting thing about th today is this is as slow as it's ever going to be for the rest of your life. <laughs> do you buy that? You're saying you don't buy that? Um, I do buy it. Sometimes that that concerns me so much. Yeah, and me, you know. I think that's where you sort of, you you feel that there's no off switch in the sense that you. what I feel actually is that that sort of thinking um, isn't zero sum, you know. It's, it's, it's presuming that cognition is infinite, that, you know, if these, one day there's 20 hours of work to do, you'll do 20 hours of work. If the next day there's 12 hours of work, you'll do 12 hours of work. And it's rather than saying, look, any business, any person needs to ration their energy. You know, Usain Bolt doesn't win the 100 meters by training for 70 hours a week. He says, okay, I've got, this seems to be my sweet spot when I can train the most. Now I'm going to allocate that amount of training to these different components. Some will be explosive sprint speeding, some will be endurance strength, but he allocates the finite resource. And so often we don't, get ourselves in a situation where we're allocating a finite resource, we start saying, well, we've got infinite attention. And I think that thinking of this is as slow as it's ever going to be, unfortunately, falls into that line of thinking, which is just like, well, you're always going to have to read a thousand things rather than thinking, you know, where you end up with that is you think, right, I need to read a thousand websites. Actually, I'm going to subscribe to more publications. Ooh. Actually, I'm going to do this. And what you end up burn doing, out. burn out. That, that burn way burnout lies. Burn out. Rather than saying, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to specialize. I'm going to be really, really, yes. really good at this. Do you see how well that fits into the conversation yeah, we does, just had? The crafting part. It also helps from an, each employee in each seat can demonstrate leadership this way. What is the thing that I'm uniquely qualified to do best? 
What is the organization need that I'm uniquely qualified and interested in helping with? And then you get this specialization. Some people call it the volunteer army, but it's this idea that if you have 50,000 employees and they're all tuned in, they're all turned on, they're all focused on what the customer needs, you become a winning machine. Mm. And that's very different from the organization that's very bureaucratic and top down and you have to get policy change. And there's actually a really big ray of hope here for me. I'm going to say it for myself, but maybe for, for listeners. It's this idea that when the environment changes really fast, the demands on the organization are to activate these positive emotions in humans, these positive emotions of curiosity, these positive emotions of enthusiasm, of zest, Positive emotions of um, be, um, you know, the idea of energized and excitement. These are the emotions of competitive advantage in high speed, high change environments because they what they lead to are creativity. They lead to resilience. They lead to being willing to open up to what the world needs. So the fast change world that can be a little scary. The ray of hope is it will kill off the organizations that are treating people badly and activating the negative emotions. And it'll, it'll foster the organizations that foster these positive emotions. I think that's hopeful. Mm. No, I'm optimistic. I agree. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> what struck me as we were sort of going through that is obviously, you know, there's a lot of businesses right now where the imperative is just to survive. And you witnessed even this school has seen revenue go down by 45%. So, you know, it, it, it seems maybe like an indulgence to be talking about sort of those things. But inevitably what will happen is that we will emerge from, you know, the basic parts of society still remain. Those things where people are able to be inventive, resilient, like you say, will power certain businesses to to take advantage of the, the way that things have changed. Look, you know, it, it's such, it's it's a reset like none of us. Never have seen it before. Uh, you know, it, it's like, a it, it, you can see why the wartime metaphor is used because it's something that we've never seen before. And we're in this situation where productivity hasn't gone up um, for office workers in 20, 30 years. So despite the fact that you've got this magical device in your pocket and you've got this wondrous thing on your desk, all, all these devices and productivity hasn't gone up. And this feels like, for the companies who are willing to do it, it feels like a forced reset where you're able to say, right, now we're going to take advantage of all those things. It's exciting times. Mm, it is. I'll be watching. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now you've got um, you've written Alive at Work before, and you've you've written what was your first book? Oh, it was called Change to Strange. Change to Strange, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And I have uh, another one coming up. Yeah. September. So tell me about the new one. It's called Exceptional. Um, to this say is it, when everyone emerges from hiding. So in in September it comes out. That's right. Oh, I hope so. Wouldn't it be fabulous if we were done by then? I'd be delighted Ooh. if it happened before then for the Olympics. Oh, I'd be so happy about that. Um, it's interesting, Bruce. When you have to introduce your new book for the first couple of times, you don't know the best frame to put on it. One frame that I would put on it right now is it's a new methodology of building a personal highlights reel so that you can see how other people see you when you make your best impact. And it's almost, I guess, inspired by that epiphany that people have when they have either near-death experiences or they somehow read the epitaph that was written for them and published in error. Is that right? That's that, you absolutely know, right. When Chris. we're confronted with our legacy, it's often more energizing. Visceral, yeah. it's personal, and it's powerful. And one of the things that we do is we have family, friends, colleagues, mentors, high school buddies, write memories down, just like a eulogy, write down memories when you've seen this person make their best impact, and then we gather them together. And then when you read those, it has a way of washing over you and delivering this jolt of being appreciated and many times being surprised by how systematic my ways of acting are perceived in these really different social contexts. Like I gave this talk at work. I did this with a high school buddy 30 years ago. My spouse wrote this about me last week. And yet this common theme shows that there's something unique about me that, you know, that jumps out at people. And then the question, the last three chapters of the book are the question is, how could I be that more often? It's, I mean, it seems very timely. The Laurie Santos stuff about happiness is all about keeping a happiness journal and actually we can train ourselves. And this seems to be like almost the, the other part of that same 360s. Like, you know, if we witness the the emotions that we trigger in others, the feelings that we trigger in others, it actually enriches us. It makes us feel more complete. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. More complete and somehow more authentic. Almost everybody talks about when they read the consistency between these different sources, okay. and yet they didn't think those were big deals, they said it gives them a sense of authenticity or cohesiveness. And I, I think that it's a really valuable thing for a human to be seen by others as one thing across time. You know, a high school buddy and my spouse today and a boss last year and so on. I think that's really interesting. A second thing is how... Isn't it interesting how we can still get surprised, even though we've known ourselves our whole lives? A lot of times people say, I'm just shocked that that's the thing everybody points to, because for me, that's easy. That's not even the hard thing. And for me, there's a real brilliance here that this is like this, in my opinion, that's like the root of imposter syndrome, because we denigrate the things we're best at because we're, they're easy to us. 
Right. Okay. Oh, got it. Okay. And we we tell ourselves that we need to get better at yes. these things. Yes. When we focus on our limitations, we say, oh, I suck at that. I'm kind of shit at that. And so let me work on those things. So we often walk through life feeling like we're not so good because we're working on everything. When in fact, there's these brilliant moments that we demonstrate and we don't do those as much because we think, oh, that's the easy stuff. And there's this phrase that says, a fish does not know that it's wet. Do you know this phrase? It's the idea that, well, yeah, it seems easy to you because that's you. That's uniquely something that you're brilliant at doing. And the question would be, what if you did more of that? What if you worried a little less about your limitations and a little bit more about the thing that you are naturally flourishing and flowing when you do? And in some ways that goes right back to our job crafting conversation. If a leader could empower that type of thriving, they would become your soulmate. <laughs> they would like you better than their own spouse, I think. <laughs> it's very powerful when yeah, you make yeah, that happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's out in September. September 20th. Where uh, where can people find, you've got your I own podcast I hope everywhere. Well. Giphy, <laughs> Giphy. <laughs> Tell them how they can find you on Giphy. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> if you search, that really turns me on on Giphy. Dan is the winning search. Still, still. <laughs> I know, I saw it last I week. even beat Trump and Kanye. <laughs> Good. So people can find you on Giphy. I think so. And Squeezing the Orange. Yes. If you want some laughs in another type of podcast, we look at social science articles with uh, me and a comedian named Akin, and we have a ball unpacking those and just trying to say, so what did these people find here in this study? This is, it's almost like business school for people who um, want entertainment rather than That's just it. reading. So you That's go through it. academic papers, but you sort of, often these really important facts nuggets. about life. The nuggets are really good and they're so buried and nobody reads yeah. them. And it's almost a crime. Yeah. It's almost like a crime against humanity. The amount of effort put into these studies that nobody reads. <laughs> good. Thank you so much, Dan. What a joy. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I'm so grateful for, for Dan meeting me in his office in lockdown London last week. Delighted that we were able to, to do that face-to-face. -face. If you're interested in finding out more, all of the former episodes are on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. On the show notes for today, I've given a lot of links to some of the things we discussed. Dr. Larry Santos's happiness course, uh, links to, to Dan's book, Dan mentioned one paper and I've linked that there so you'll find and the gif of Dan saying that really turns me on you find it all there it's a treasure trove for you to enjoy always love hearing from you you can contact me on LinkedIn on Twitter or via the website thank you for listening I've been Bruce Daisley see you next time up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.